You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the June edition of Heart Sounds. I'm your host, Shelley Wood, Managing Editor at TCTMD.com. Heart Sounds is the podcast where I tell you about some of the top news on TCTMD this past month. We speak with cardiology folks doing important work all over the world to pull together the daily news on TCTMD. Heart Sounds gives you the chance to eavesdrop on some of the best snippets from those conversations. Most of the TCTMD news team spent the first week of June recovering from the EuroPCR meeting in Paris. If you hadn't had a chance to catch up on the news from EuroPCR, find it under the conference tab on tctmd.com. A few weeks later, Michael Reardon and I shipped out to Chicago to the Structural Heart Disease Summit. I'll bring you a few highlights from that meeting in a moment. One last thing before we jump in. For the whole month of July, Heart Sounds will be participating in the People's Choice Podcast Awards in the health category. If you're a Heart Sounds fan, please take the time to nominate us. Find the Vote for Heart Sounds button halfway down the homepage at TCTMD. For now, let's take a listen to some of the other news making waves this month. High-sensitivity troponin finally made it to the United States in early 2017, but the test had been available in Europe for years. One of the concerns often heard stateside is that using a much more sensitive blood test to help triage chest pain patients might lead to more being mistakenly pegged as having had a myocardial infarction, and that this would trigger a barrage of additional tests and hospital admissions, leading to soaring costs. This month, a team of researchers led by Maria Odquist of South Alvesburg Hospital in Boras, Sweden, delved into the Swedish National Patient Registry to identify first MIs occurring in the period spanning 2009 to 2013. The more sensitive troponin test was introduced in just four hospitals in 2009, but by the end of 2013, 73% of Swedish hospitals were using the high-sensitivity troponin T assays. As Caitlin Cox reported for TCTMD, more than 47,000 MIs were identified during the study period via conventional cardiac troponin assays, and nearly 41,000 using the new HS cardiac troponin T assays. At a population level, the total number of MIs diagnosed decreased from 33,380 in 2007 to 25,787 in 2013. But in the 90 days before and after introduction of the new tests, there was a 5% overall increase in the diagnosis of MI. Importantly, interpretation of testing results varied among hospitals, such that some saw a rise in MI and others a drop. Hospitals that use a decision limit higher than the 99th percentile value had no change in MI rate. Over a mean follow-up period of almost four years, all-cause mortality was no higher among patients diagnosed using the HSC-TNT assay than with those diagnosed using the less sensitive tests. But over a mean follow-up of 3.1 years, the likelihood that patients diagnosed with MI would go on to have another one was significantly lower when the new tests were employed. As well, patients in the HSC-TNT group were more likely to undergo coronary angiography and revascularization within 30 days of MI, although discharge medications were similar between groups. Full results of the study were published in JAK. Kristen Newby of Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, co-wrote an editorial accompanying the paper. Here's part of what Newby had to say to Caitlin. These new um, high-sensitivity assays um, move us from not being able to detect troponin 
in patients or people who are normal to being able to actually detect circulating troponin in somewhere between 50 and 90 percent of people. So they're much, much, much more sensitive. The challenge with them and, and what has raised all the concern is that while they're very good at measuring myonecrosis, um, they're not specific for what caused that damage. And as we've gotten increasingly sensitive with our assays, that problem of specificity has gotten greater. So we're now able to pick up myonecrosis from a whole bunch of other things other than, um, than heart attacks. And so that's kind of fueled this concern that, especially kind of given the way we use proponent in, in the U.S., which may be a little less discriminate than um, Europe, although that's debated, that we may be picking up a lot of uh, positive um, or elevated troponins that aren't heart attacks. And then, you know, what are we going to do with them? Or we're just going to be picking up a lot more heart attacks and we're going to overwhelm the system. So with that kind of as context, I think what we're seeing come out of Europe to me is reassuring and saying that there's, you know, appropriately, we're probably going to pick up somewhere between, depending on how we've been practicing, between 5 and 10% more MIs on a on an absolute basis. So in a prior study, it went like from 10 to 14%. This one was an absolute 5%. So, you know, a modest number, but something that really should be manageable within our healthcare system. Here's a topic close to the heart of nearly every American cardiologist I've ever met, medical liability reform. Writing in the journal JAMA Cardiology this month, investigators led by Ali Mokhtadari and Stephen Farmer, both from George Washington University in D.C., asked an important question. Does the introduction of damage caps to limit the financial compensation for malpractice plaintiffs significantly alter the ways physicians test and manage patients with suspected coronary artery disease? They decided to compare physician practices in states that have adopted non-economic damage caps which put a limit on the amount of money that can be awarded for pain, suffering, and emotional distress, to states where no such legislation has been introduced. For perspective, some states have capped non-economic payouts at $25,000, while other states have amounts approaching a million dollars. The authors of this paper found that physicians practicing in states with damage caps are significantly less likely to send a patient with suspected coronary disease directly to angiography. They were more likely to order an initial stress test than physicians practicing in states without damage caps. There were downstream differences as well. Patients treated in states with these liability limits were less likely to be sent to angiography following the initial stress test and also less likely to undergo coronary revascularization when sent to the cath lab. According to Mokhtadari, who spoke with TCTMD reporter Michael Reardon, the results suggest that physicians are willing to tolerate more clinical ambiguity after the adoption of damage caps and are less likely to practice defensive medicine. George Rogers of Seton Heart Institute in Austin was not involved in the study, but he's worked toward extensive liability reform in Texas. Rogers also spoke with Mike and told him that defensive medicine is alive and well across the U.S. Here are two separate parts from Rogers' conversation with Mike. I've stitched the two together. The first sums up the current situation, 
and the second offers a solution. The stakes are high. You know, if it is uh, an unstable uh, coronary situation, everybody's greatest fear is uh, they're going to they're going to leave your care and they're going to walk out and have a heart attack, and uh, so that's everybody's fear. And the stakes are high because, you know, typically these are patients in their 50s and 60s and in the prime of their life. And, uh, and especially if you have non-economic damages and, uh, you know, you're dealing with, you know, 50-year-old man, uh, well, you know, he could have earned this much more money and all this kind of stuff and, uh, and he's, he's dead now. I think that there are two words that would profoundly change uh, that whole picture, two words, loser pays. That's what they do in England. So you can, you can initiate a lawsuit, go ahead, have at it. But if you lose, you pay all the court costs, all the expert witness defense, everything. You pay. So go ahead, have at it. Right. And as a result, as a result, they, they spend a lot less on defensive medicine, you know, that kind of thing. We got some somber news this month. Leading cardiovascular researcher and epidemiologist Jack Tu has died. I don't think we've ever included an obituary in the Heart Sounds podcast, but I'm not sure why. We saw an outpouring of tributes to Dr. Tu on Twitter and in response to Laura McEwen's story on TCTMD. I myself recall interviewing Dr. Tu in my early days on theheart.org and remember Tu being extraordinarily patient with his time and insights, particularly for a cub reporter struggling to get up to speed in the complex cardiology beat. Dr. Tu died suddenly at home this month. He was just 53 years old. Friends and colleagues who spoke with Laura after his death described him as a quiet giant in his field, thoughtful, kind, and collaborative. As Jacob Udell from the University of Toronto told Laura, Dr. Tu also left his mark on some of the most important cardiovascular outcomes research of the last few decades. If you um, have an opportunity just to kind of look him up and you'll see what the impact I'm talking about and how you know many lives he touched and just even looking at Twitter and how many comments came out of the cardiology uh, outcomes research community and uh, commentary about the impact and the lives he touched. I'm one of the most junior people in our cardiology outcomes research group, so I, I happen to have known him personally and, and very much uh, learned a lot from his uh, from his mentorship, and we're working on a number of papers together uh, that will be coming out in the next while. But uh, many, many other people who are already themselves independently, you know, again, uh, considered high-level um, uh, researchers in the field and, uh, and many other people across, you know, the world, let alone North America, because um, he's been doing this for the last uh, 30 years. He was really a child prodigy. He graduated from med school at the age of 23 and really took off in terms of doing this kind of research. And so he led our big cardiovascular outcomes research group in Toronto at the Institute for Clinical Vital Sciences. And you, you know, covered, I'm sure over the years, many, many, many papers who've come out of the Institute for Clinical Vital Sciences on, on anything from uh, do patients, again, who get on coronary angiogram and real-world clinical practice, you know, do better than those who get uh, treated with fibrolinesis. Do immigrants who have worse cardiovascular treatment and outcomes and people from, you know, North America, uh, you know, the stuff about flu vaccines and cardiac outcomes that we had worked on at ISIS. So there's there's tons of stuff you'll see when you go through your files and archives that he's he touched.
A two-second glance at your Twitter feed can end up munching 10 minutes out of your day, particularly if you stumble across an engaging thread. One such discussion, which caught the eye of TCTMD reporter Todd Neal, stemmed from a provocative session being held during a small European medical course dedicated to transradial access. The question debated first at that conference, then on Cardio Twitter, was this. Given current knowledge, should routinely performing PCI with transfemoral access be considered malpractice? It's an inflammatory notion, and one that made for a great feature story by Todd. Todd's feature helps shine a light on a range of issues at the heart of this debate. What are the medical-legal implications of sticking with a transfemoral-dominated practice? What is needed for the evidence base favoring transradial to be considered indisputable? And why does the United States continue to lag behind other countries in its adoption of a radial-first approach? Todd's feature story is titled, The M-Word, Is Routine Transfemoral PCI Defensible in 2018? I hope you'll seek it out on TCTMD to hear the full range of opinions, including some legal insights from a malpractice lawyer. For now, here's Mammus Mammus of Keele University in Stoke-on-Trent, England, an unabashed radial-first enthusiast, making the case for the malpractice argument. If one were to go before a court of law with a transfemoral complication, I think it would be very difficult to justify going transfemorally regularly you know as a standard practice and i would say that you know as a community we should consider it equal to i don't know maybe you know, doing pcis without using antiplatelets for example you know i think that the, the body of evidence is so strong that i you know i i cannot see that why an individual would choose to undertake a procedure using an access side that's been shown to increase the risk of mortality for their patients and in which a lot of contemporary international guidelines advocate radial. You know, and I think it really goes down to, you know, who are we serving here as interventional cardiologists? Are we serving the patient? And if we are serving the patient, you know, the, be the best thing for the patient is to reduce their risk of complications. And there is no doubt that going radially reduces their risk of complications. If we're serving ourselves because, you know, we don't feel comfortable with a particular access site or we don't feel trained in using a particular access site, then I think it's the responsibility of the operator to, you know, receive this training to optimize their patient's outcomes. Most of the people who spoke with Todd took a different stance from Mammoth. Here's Sunil Rao of Duke University, an equally unabashed supporter of transradial interventions. But Rao disagrees that malpractice applies in this setting. In general, I think that we need to be able to preserve physicians' independence to tailor their treatment to the patient in front of them without the threat of uh, adverse legal consequences. I think that, uh, so the challenge here is that we have to remember that medical malpractice does not take place in the context necessarily of what is the best evidence. Medical malpractice in general is related to what the community standard of care is in the community that the physician is practicing. So, for example, if a patient has an untoward event and they had a femoral access procedure and the, the general approach is to say in that community, would most physicians, is it more likely than not that a physician would have reasonably accessed the femoral artery in this case? And if the answer is yes, well, then malpractice has not been committed. 
So that's the problem, is that there is a difference between what is considered medical malpractice and what is considered, quote, best practices based on evidence. I promised I'd get you a bit of a synopsis from the Structural Heart Disease Summit, which for the first time combined the TVT, LAA, and PFO conferences all in one place. For practicing cardiologists, I'm guessing the real draw to these meetings are the live cases, first-in-man stuff, and practical tips and tricks. That doesn't mean there aren't a few sessions dedicated to new data or polite disagreement to keep us newshounds happy. This year, Michael Reardon and I managed to knock out a few stories on the brewing debate over TAVR hospital volumes and how those might be linked to reimbursement, cerebral embolic protection during valve interventions, a new large-bore closure device, and much more. One story I covered tried to capture some expert predictions as to how two eagerly awaited trials will pan out in the coming months. Mitra FR will be presented at ESC 2018 at the end of August, while COAPT will be out one month later at TCT 2018. Both trials are investigating the MitraClip versus optimal medical therapy in functional MR. I hope you'll check out all of our stories from this meeting under the conferences tab on TCTMD. In the meantime, here's part of my conversation with longtime mitral man Ted Feldman of Evanston Hospital in Chicago for an upcoming episode of our regular current affairs video, On Record. I've trimmed down this audio somewhat, but you can catch the whole show when it airs later this summer. Spoiler alert, I am not the first person to ask Feldman what he predicts might happen with co-opt. I've had to address this in several debates. I've sort of chewed on it quite a bit, and uh, I'll, I'll paint you a, a slide, and that is you've got a, a big, shiny, sparkling white box, positive, endpoints are unequivocal, we win. And you've got a black box at the bottom, very bleak, nothing works, it's all negative. And very, very few trials actually hit those poles. Yeah. So TAVR sort of created a, a unrealistic expectation that we can have valve therapy trials that are unequivocal. Right. That's a once in a several lifetime okay. experience. So you're setting up a gray box for us here, are you? Yes, indeed. There are many, many things that we could see that give us uh, positive signals without necessarily hitting positive absolute primary endpoints. And if I have to make a prediction, that would be it, that we'll get some signals. on. Uh, quality of life, for example. Okay. And uh, we may see, again, just for example, with the COAP population, a analysis absent the CRT patients. Or maybe we'll be surprised and we have a new therapy oh. for CRT failure. If you don't already know about the Fellows Forum on TCTMD, you're missing out, no matter what stage you're at in your career. Edited by TCTMD's Yael Maxwell, the Fellows Forum is dedicated to cardiology fellows and those who train them. The site within a site includes the Fellow Talk blog, video content from various conferences throughout the year, as well as monthly profiles of trainees nominated by their program directors or other veterans in the field. We cover a lot of news elsewhere on the site that speaks to treatment gaps, soaring costs of drugs and devices, unsustainable or unneeded practices, these featured fellow profiles, by contrast, are brimming over with optimism and I think serve as a reminder of what drew many of TCTMD's community to cardiology in the first place. The featured fellow this month is Serbi Chamaria of Mount Sinai Hospital. 
She is finishing up her training this month and heading to a faculty position at Mercy Clinic in Fort Smith, Arkansas. A few months ago, she participated in an event I told you about on an earlier podcast. This was the historic all-female live case held at the CRT 2018 meeting. Have a listen. It actually felt like something really, really, you know, great because Montana does a lot of live cases. They're part of live cases for, you know, a lot of conferences. And in almost all those live cases, you can see that it's not uh, primarily run by women, be it the operators or be it the panelists. This was a great opportunity to actually prove that uh, interventional cardiology or women in interventional cardiology are equally great as men in interventional cardiology, which, I've, I mean, it made me happy, but at the, t- the same time, it made me a little sad that we still have to prove to the world that. Uh, we're equal to men, and we have to, you know, uh, promote ourselves these uh, conferences. I mean, I really thank Dr. Ron Waxman for initiating this event. But uh, like I said, it made me feel very, very proud that I am part of this community of women who are willing to give up their own lives to help patients. But it did make me a little sad, too, that we still have to strive to prove to the world that we're equal to men. Before signing off, let me remind you again, if you like what you hear on Heart Sounds, please take the time to nominate us for the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Head on over to the TCTMD homepage. You'll find the Vote for Heart Sounds button halfway down. That's also where you'll find our two other podcasts, Talking Points and TCT Radio. We air an episode from one of our three podcasts every Wednesday. That's it for the June episode of Heart Sounds. In July, TCTMD reporter Yael Maxwell is heading out to hear what's hot in CT imaging at the SCCT meeting in Grapevine, Texas. There was a Marvin Gaye pun to be made there, but I've spared you. Otherwise, summer tends to be pretty quiet on the cardio news front. If you've got a tip for us, pass it along. You can find me via my bio on tctmd.com or on Twitter. I'm Shelley Wood, too. Thanks to all of the TCTMD reporters for letting us listen in on your interviews, and to Daniel Parker and the CRF Studio folks for helping me pull together this podcast each month. And all of you, of course. Thanks for listening.